Well, my issue with pride has been evident since I was a, uh, a small child. Certainly since I was late grade school, middle school. I, I, I remember one time in particular, I, uh, like so many kids do when they're in middle school, high school, I mowed lawns, right? I went knocking on people's doors, asking them if I could mow lawns, cut a deal, you know, for them to pay me to mow their lawn. And, and I was pretty proud. I have to say I was pretty proud of my lawn mowing skills. Uh, they, they were good. And I remember one day in particular, I, I didn't have a truck. I didn't have any way to get my lawnmower. So what I would typically do is I'd ride my bicycle and I'd literally hold the lawnmower by the handle and I would, some of you are shaking your head. Some of you guys are because you know what I'm talking about. You did this. And I got pretty good at it where I could hold my lawnmower and I could get going where I needed to go and I'd get there. And one day in particular, I mowed a lawn. Again, pretty proud of my skills, right? I mean, it's not, it's not every middle school kid that can mow a lawn well, but I, but I can. And I'm on my bike and I, I, I'm, I'm sitting on the bike and I'm, I'm, I just start and I have the lawnmower behind me. And I, and I start down the road, just a residential street, and I thought, just one more peek. Just one more peek at the lawn, the masterpiece that I have just created for this suburban family. And I turned around and, and just kind of, you know what that looked like? That's awesome, man. You are good. If you keep this up, by the time you're like 15, you're going to be like known all over the state for your lawn mowing skills. And it was at that particular moment that I ran into the back of a parked car. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Got up, my handlebars are all twisted up. You know, my pride is, you know, at that point, you talk about losing it. It went pretty quickly. My tires all messed up and and I got home and had to explain to my mom and dad what took place, why the bike is messed up. And my dad said, well, that serves you right. Be sure your, your sin will find you out. Uh, nobody has to teach us how to be proud. Nobody has to teach us how to be arrogant. It's one of those things that we learn all on our own. And pride is not an issue for some of us. Pride is an issue at some point for every one of us. Watergate conspirator G. Gordon Liddy is quoted as saying in 1977, I have found within myself all I need and all I ever shall need. I'm a man of great faith, but my faith is in G. Gordon Liddy. I have never failed me. <laughs> kind of surprising that he would write that, right? Just shortly after he got out of jail, obviously failing him. My favorite is one that I read this week about Ronald Reagan, the great president, recalling an occasion when he was governor of California and he made a speech in Mexico City. He's quoted as saying this, After I'd finished speaking, I sat down to rather unenthusiastic applause, and I was a little embarrassed, he said. The speaker who followed me spoke in Spanish, which I didn't understand, and he was being applauded about every paragraph. And so to hide my embarrassment, I started clapping before everyone else, and longer than anyone else, until our ambassador leaned over and said, Mr. President, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's interpreting your speech. You get that? He's applauding. He's applauding. Okay, if you've got to explain it, then it doesn't get it. You're, you're tired. Some of you were at prom last night here in the Panther Creek cafeteria. Ronald Reagan struggled with it. We all struggle with it. It's not just a, a thing of presidents. It's not just a, a thing of professional athletes. It's an issue we all face. In his masterwork, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. And he wrote this, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. 
It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God at all. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Esther chapter 5. And this morning in Esther chapter 5, I want us to look at the attitudes of two of the main characters in our current series, Haman and Esther. And I want to look at the difference between a humble, wise queen and a proud and angry politician. Look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. The text says, Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. You see, Esther waits for three days. She's found out through Mordecai that Haman, the wicked, evil politician, has gone to the king and with his signet ring has stamped a law which basically says that all the Jewish people are going to be eradicated. Historians tell us about 15 million of them. And so Mordecai gets a message to Esther that she's got to do something. If you were here last week, you remember at the end of chapter 4, she struggles with that decision. She makes that decision. If I die, I die. But it was for this moment that I've been placed where I am. And so she asked Mordecai to go and, and ask all the Jews to fast for her and to pray is the inference there that she would be given wisdom as far as what to do. And so she waits for three days before she approaches the king. I'm not sure that I could have done that. Could you? If you knew that the plight of 15 million people rested on you and rested on the decisions and the choices that you would make, could you have just waited? There are 15 million lives that are depending on Esther going to plead with the king. I found this to be true in my life, and I wonder if you have, that there is oftentimes much wisdom in waiting. Have you found that to be true? I have got to be one of the most impatient people. And so are some of you, lest you judge me too harshly. I'm the kind of guy that I go and stand in front of a microwave when the popcorn's there, going, when is it going to happen, right? And I grew up in a home where we, didn't, we, we got a microwave, I think, my junior year in, in high school, all right? I know kids are going, you didn't have a microwave? I mean, what kind of place is this? We didn't have the World Wide Web either. Fancy that. And I can remember my mom, you know, my dad loved popcorn, and my mom shaking the pan on the stove, you know, and it took a long time for that stuff to start popping. And now we can make a bag of popcorn in two and a half minutes, right? It's supposed to be two and a half minutes, so if you try different brands, you could have a bad result sometimes too, right? And I stand there in front of the microwave, when's it going to be done? I'm not a patient person. And by the way, that extrapolates into many other areas of my life where I am not patient. But there is much wisdom in waiting. There's wisdom in waiting. In fact, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40, 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. Four things happen when we wait. Number one, we gain strength. We gain strength. Number two, which I, I really love, is that we get a better perspective. Have you ever waited only to find out later on that had you responded right away, you might have said something, you might have done something that might have gotten you in a lot of trouble? Am I the only one that's been there? I've done that so often. I have a new rule that I never respond to an email that I'm upset about right at the moment. I wait 24 hours. Might be a good rule for some of you. Not saying I've received any emails that maybe, but I'm just saying it might be good for you just to wait. And so I wait. 
And you know what I have found to be true? That typically, 24 hours later, I write a very different email response than I might have written had I hit reply right away. By the way, it also goes for just how we speak our words, that sometimes we would be better off just to wait. How many marriages could be much more harmonious if rather than when you sense that conflict coming, you just jump into the conflict if you just said, hey, let's go to our corners. Okay, now not, not literally. Oh, hopefully we don't have too many of those going on. But let's just go to our corners. Let's wait because we get a better perspective. I think that's why it's recorded in Scripture that they will mount up with wings like eagles. An eagle's perspective is incredible, is it not? A bird's perspective is incredible. Have you ever been at the beach and all this, you know, you're sitting in that sand all lathered up with oil, which I don't understand why you do that, but some of you do that. Sand is coming up all over you and you're sitting there and all of a sudden you watch this bird swoop down out of nowhere and grab a fish out of the water. Have you ever seen that? It's an incredible thing. The perspective that they have when they get above it. We gain strength, we get better perspective. Number three, we store up extra energy. And number four, we deepen our determination to persevere. They will run and not get tired. And so Esther, after her small group, she fasted for three days. She and her small group. And she goes before the king in his palace. And I believe she waited and she prepared herself. And so she came calmly. She came wisely. She came confidently. And he, as usual, is sitting on his throne. He loves to sit on his throne. Have you observed that through five chapters now? He loves to sit on his throne. Unless you be too hard on him, probably if you and I had a throne, you'd sit on it too. That'd be great, moms and dads, to have a throne just in your house. These kids go, where's dad? He's on the throne. Where's mom? She's sitting on the throne. Is every time you see King Xerxes, he's sitting on his throne. He's never shooting hoops out in the backyard. He's never riding his horse. You assume he has a horse, right? He's a king. He goes into battle. No, he's always sitting on his throne, and that's where Esther finds him, and most likely with a drink in his hand. This is an intimidating environment for anybody. In fact, historians tell us that it was made up of 35 pillars, 65 feet high. No pillar was in a place where the king's throne could not be seen. This guy was serious about his authority. You imagine the intimidating process of, of Esther walking in on that day, wondering, will he receive me? Will he listen to what I have to say? I thought this this week. Notice the difference between Esther going before the, this earthly king and us before our heavenly king. I can't help but notice the, the parallel between the two. Esther has to clean herself up and she puts on her royal apparel and she goes before the king not knowing if he would have a conversation with her or literally if he would behead her. Now contrast that with the way that you and I are able to go before our heavenly king, the God of the universe. What an incredible difference there is. We're able, Matthew eleven twenty eight says, with his invitation to come unto me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. It doesn't give us the idea that we have to clean ourselves up, does it? I love that. There are some of you here this morning that you've bought into the idea that somehow in order to come to God, you have to clean yourself up. You have to stop doing these things. And yet God says, no, you come just as you are. You come with your burden. You come right where you are. And I'm going to meet you there. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to put on the right clothes. I love what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Look at verse 2. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. That was a good thing. And he extended to her the golden scepter which was in his hand. And so Esther came near, and she touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What's troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Now, make sure you understand the perspective here. She knows, she told us in chapter 4, I can't just go before the king. In fact, he hasn't wanted to see me in 30 days. I can't just go before the king. If he doesn't want to see me, I could literally lose my life. And so that's a tense moment. If we were, if we were seeing this on a Hollywood big screen, this, the music would be dun, 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 dun. The music would be playing and we'd be going, what's going to happen? We see the guy standing there with the axe in his hand. Is he going to chop her head off? And the king says, come see me. Now some of you men are going, I like this whole idea of the, okay, you have problems, all right? You need counseling. We've got people that can help you with those things, all right? Wives, if your husbands are doing that, email me this week. I'll wait 24, I won't even wait 24 hours and respond to that. I'll tell you exactly what we're going to do. He's holding that scepter in his hand, and she knows that either he's going to keep it up, and if he keeps it up, she's going to see Jesus, or he's going to put it down, and when she goes and touches the top of that scepter, that means that he will see her. And so this is a tense moment. The music is playing. He extends the scepter. She touches the scepter, and he says, what's troubling you? What's troubling you? What is your request? Even to half the kingdom it shall be given to you. I love that. I mean, I'm thinking, you talk about a guy who's impatient. I'm thinking at that particular moment, I have some things to say, right? Let's just say, too, that King Xerxes really didn't mean what he was saying when he said, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. It's a figure of speech. If she said, okay, I'll take half of the kingdom, it would have been a problem, all right? He might have no longer wanted to see her. In fact, if you go back into the New Testament, into the book of Mark in chapter 6, you see where King Herod had a similar situation. He offered a young girl that same opportunity, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist. And, and uncommonly opposite of what his desires were, he granted that request. And so that was something that kings did, but they really didn't mean it. But that would have been my moment. If I would have known that 15 million people now were dependent upon me, that would have been my moment. He's willing to give me half the kingdom if I say, hey, I just want you to spare the life of 15 million people. I'm sure he would have gone, wow, half the kingdom, 15 million people? Sure, I'll spare their lives. But she doesn't. She's patient. I might have blurted that out, but she didn't. Imagine if she would have. I want you to save my people. Oops, my people. Remember, he doesn't know. He does not know that she's a Jew. Esther's patient. I want to develop that character trait in my life. Patience. And I'd like to do it soon. I, 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 want, to, I want to learn. And some of you are, and I, I'm just being transparent with you. I, I want to learn what it's like to wait. You ever been around people that just pray? They're, they're what we refer to a lot of times in, in, in our Christian communities as prayer warriors. They just pray and they just wait. I was on the phone yesterday with the realtor that's helping us uh, locate a piece of land. And, and I'm sure by the end of the conversation, he could sense that, come on, you know, church is at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. I need an answer. And yet I'm telling him all of the spiritual things. Well, God opens and closes doors. I mean, yeah, 
hey, I can do it with the best of them. I've been doing this for 25 years. And I got off the phone and I'm thinking, I don't think he bought into that. Because I'm impatient. Yet Esther's patient. Look what her request is in verse 4. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I've prepared for him. Now, is it just me or do you think that that's a little bit of an awkward request? Here's 15 million people that are about ready to die. And she says, hey, let's go eat and drink. I don't know about the eating, but I know you like to drink. Let's go do that. Do you get the idea already through five chapters that these people do a lot of this? You'd think it was happening in a Baptist church or something, but this is it's constant eating and drinking. Look at verse 5. The king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared, and as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It's going to be granted to you, and what is your request? Even if you want half the kingdom, here he goes again, it shall be done. Now, if you're like me, after you read verse 6, you go, okay, now's the moment, right? Now's when she's going to do it. Look at verse 7. So Esther replied, my petition and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and hang him come to a banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. He's got to be going, this is awesome. I didn't even know you liked to cook. And yet now you're having us for two meals. And I get to bring my little buddy Haman with me. I love that guy. I mean, you know, a signet ring, everybody bows down to him. This is awesome. Look at how Haman responds in verse 9. Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. Verses 1 through 8, we see this humble, wise queen. Which, by the way, she has made quite the extreme turnaround from chapter 4 to chapter 5. She's decided to to come out with who she is, to come out about her faith in Jehovah God. And now she is acting in a wise and humble way, willing to submit to the authority of a mean, nasty king. Contrast that in verse 9 with Haman. Haman went out that day. He was glad and pleased of heart. Haman leaves the palace after the banquet with Xerxes and Esther, and he's on cloud nine. You've been there before. Some of us, as I say before, some of us read things in the Bible and we go, those people, that's disgusting. I mean, why would they ever behave that way? Have you ever done it? I do. I'm hard on Jonah all the time. Jonah, how could you not listen to God? How embarrassing. You get thrown into the sea and swallowed by a big fish. And I mean, that, that's horrible. We've been there. When life's going on just like you think it ought to be going on, not because God's pleased with your life, but because you're pleased with your life? Let me tell you, there's a major difference between God being pleased with my life and me being pleased with my life. There's a big difference between what pleases me with my life and what satisfies me and what makes me glad and pleased of heart than what makes God pleased and glad of heart. Can you picture the scene, though? The text says he's glad and he's pleased of heart. In Hebrew, it would actually be translated, he's so stoked. That's right. He's stoked. I mean, he's just going, life is awesome. This is incredible. I've dreamt about this since I was a little boy of somehow being in the royal palace and having a a very important position, and I have done it. Some of you have done this after a promotion at work. You've gone into your office and gone, yes, this is all I ever wanted. 
I just wanted to have this thing on my door that says, you know, whatever it says you are, you know, uh, chief coffee maker, whatever. I just wanted that, and now I've attained to that. You, you know where he is. I've arrived. I'm the king's right-hand man. Not only am I the king's right-hand man, people bow down to me. I have everybody but one guy. But everybody else bows down to me. I get what I want. And now on top of that, the queen, she likes me too. My charm has worn off on her. Two people she's asked to come to the banquet. Just two. The king, her husband, and moi, me. I'm the one. Here's what we would do in our modern day. I say we. Let's just call it we, okay? I'll jump in the hot water with all of some of you. We would get on Twitter right away and go, guess where I'm going to dinner? Right? You know who you are. And then when we got there, we'd pop out the old trusty iPhone with that Instagram app, and we would take a photo, right? And what would that photo be of? Well, I'd take a few shots of the palace. Just want to make sure you know where I am. No lost trace tonight for me. I'm in the banquet with the king and the queen. Uh, excuse me, sir, king, uh, ma'am, would you mind just taking a picture for me? You know, he gets one of the eunuchs to come over with the iPhone and they take a little snapshot. He's right in between them and he posts on the bottom of that, me and the king and queen. Nobody else, just a little dinner party. Mwah! I've arrived. Let the Twitter sphere understand I have arrived. Lest there be any doubt about my credibility of where I really am, Instagram photo. I've arrived. Look how quickly it changes at the end of verse 9, 9b. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Now, this is a little troubling to me. Here's Mordecai. He sees Haman again after the king has issued the decree to eradicate all the Jews, about 15 million of them, because he won't bow down to Haman. And here he sees him again, and you've got to think to yourself, what would you do at this particular moment? Don't you think you'd go, okay, all right, uncle, I think I'll bow. No, he doesn't do it. No, he doesn't do it. Haman walks by, everybody else is bowing. Hey, it's good to see you. It's just kind of, a, just kind of one of those things that, that, that uh, the British would do with the queen, that we would do in the military, saluting somebody who's of higher rank. It's a simple show of respect, and still Mordecai refuses to do it. One Bible teacher, when he was teaching on this particular text, says that was either stupid or courageous. I like what he said further, and there's a fine line between stupid and courageous. Remember that. There's a very fine line. Some of us want to be bold for things we should not be bold for. There's a fine line there. Haman, at this point, obviously has real issues. If we weren't sure of that up to this point, now we know for sure. Mordecai is a nobody. Nobody, nobody cares about Mordecai. He's one guy. Haman ought to be able to walk right on by and go, yeah, whatever, dude. He can't do it. For whatever reason, he can't do it. That's what pride does to us, though, doesn't it? Pride lies to us. You think about it. We believe things that are not true about other people, and we believe things about ourselves that are not true. That's what we do. That's what pride is. Look at verse 10. Haman controlled himself, however. This is when we could throw a party for Haman. He controlled himself. That's awesome. He went to his house and he sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Verse 11, then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons 
And every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had been promoted, he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, verse 12, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And guess what? Guess what? We had such a great time. I was such an incredible guest around the table. She wants me to come again tomorrow. <laughs> Just want to let you know. And I know what you're thinking. You're like me when you read a text this way and you, and you go, that is so arrogant. In fact, I thought to myself as I read this when I first started preparing in chapter 5, and I thought, I know people like that. <laughs> do you ever do that? I know people like that. I know people that do that. I know people that say things like that. I know people that blow their trumpet like that. I know people that are always talking about themselves and not about other people. I know people that are really proud. I know people that could use a really good dose of reality and humility. Anybody else have that reaction? And Really, it's like God, when you're reading his word and you say, God, show me, teach me. Sometimes he does. You ever... You ever have that happen? Where you're going, oh God, show me. Let me be a better man. Show me in your word. And all of a sudden he goes, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, you're just like that. You do that. You see, here's what we have a habit of doing. I, I wouldn't come and sit in front of a group of people and go, let me tell you, got two sons. <laughs> Boy, are they men. And I've attained this great position. See, I wouldn't do that. Many of you wouldn't do that either. We do things that we refer to as false senses of humility, don't we? You probably did it this morning already when you came into church. You probably said some things that would cause people to think that, that you were really humble when in actuality you said what you said so that they would get some idea about maybe you were a little bit more spiritual than you actually are. Oh, I can hear it now. Let me just tell you what's happened in my life, dear wife, all of my friends. It's been incredible. I'm a wealthy man, as you can see. I've got sons. I've been promoted. And I've even, by the way, just got back from eating a meal with the king and queen. Don't laugh at it. We do the same thing. Verse 3. If we go back to verse 3, we've got a real problem. Look what he said. Yet all this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. It's an incredible transitional sentence right there. I've been given all of these things, and yet I cannot be satisfied. That's what greed does. That's what pride does. Some of us know it in a very real way. That's where we're living today. In your mind, you're satisfied with everything in your life. And you go, but if I just had this. You see, when you're arrogant, nothing satisfies you. If one thing is not right, then everything is terrible. And so look in verse 14. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, now, let me, let me stop here for just a moment and say many of us are like this too. I, I said it a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 1. We pick our friends who agree with us. Let me say this again. 
because some of you are like me and you missed it the first time, and this is really important, and I want to make sure that you, that you get it. You and I don't need a bunch of people sitting around us who simply tell us what we want to hear. A bunch of people who simply agree with us and they listen to us complain and tell them how great we are, and they just simply affirm it. I see it all the time. I know I go back to Facebook, but so many of you live in this world where it's constant going back and forth and writing and posting and doing these things. I see people do this all the time, and they'll say really dumb stuff on their Facebook page. And then all of a sudden, they got 10 people that are going, I know, sister. I'm going, you know what, sister? I mean, she's foolish. Why don't you say, you're a fool, sister? But instead we go, I know where you're coming from, sister. Amen, brother. And I'm going, amen, brother. And every once in a while I feel like going, you out of your mind, brother. That's what I want to do. And then I say to myself, self, be patient, wait. Think about it for 24 hours. And I don't post. Because I understand it's the world wide web, right? It's all out there. This is what we do, though. We choose people who will agree with us. Our Facebook pages are full of that. If you chose people that did not agree with you all the time and that were willing to speak truth into your life, you would constantly find people when you did stuff like that going, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't do that. Maybe they wouldn't even do it publicly. Maybe they would just send you a private message. I think you ought to take that off. That's my ministry sometimes as the pastor of Facebook. I I do that to people. I think you could have one. Maybe we'll have one someday, in fact. Maybe we'll have a guy on staff. He's the pastor of Facebook. That's what he does. He just ministers to people right there in the world wide web. He's just right there. It's the true friend, though, that sends you that private message that says, hey, what's going on? Why'd you say that? I don't think, do you really mean that? Haman doesn't have any Facebook friends like that. He's got a bunch of people that tell him what he wants to hear. Proverbs 27.6 says this, The wound of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Your friends are the people that speak truth into your life. If you've got a bunch of people in your life that are always, "Mm, Oh, you're so wonderful. Mm, I know. I know where you're coming from. Me too. I can't believe they did that either. And you're going, "Mm, I just feel so loved. I feel so appreciated by these people. You don't have friends. Those are your enemies. You need some people to speak truth into your life. And as we get into chapter 6 next week, all right, don't peek ahead. Don't do it. As we get into chapter 6 next week, I can't help but wonder how differently Haman's life might have gone had he had true friends in his life. What if his wife had said to him, You're out of your mind. I don't see how you can say that. Do you know how arrogant you've become, Haman? What if his friends would have looked at him and said, look, we don't like you because you have an important job. Who cares if you had lunch with the queen? I had lunch at Taco Bell and saved myself a lot. I mean, we need people like that. I can't help but think that he had somebody in his life that was willing to tell him to get get over himself and grow up if his life might have taken a different turn. And let me just say this to you, men and women, if you've got people in your life that are willing to look at you and say, you need to grow up, you need to get yourself together. I'll help you do that, by the way. But you need to grow up and get yourself together and move in the right direction. If you don't have people like that, let me suggest to you that you find some people like that. Look at the end of verse 14. Here's their great advice. 
This is what wise friends do, right? You hang out with stupid people, you do stupid things. I used to say it when I was a, a, a youth pastor. You are like your friends are, or you soon will be. You are. Look at your friends. Hope you like what you see. Because that's either who you are, or it's who you're becoming. Unfortunately for Haman, that was true in his life. Look at verse 14b. Have a gallows, 50 cubits high, 75 feet, made. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. Again, something twisted about that, right? Hey, we got some, you know, you, you should not be disrespected like that. We got an idea for you. Build a gallows 75 feet high, and tomorrow I'll just hang him on it. And then, not just, and then go have your banquet. Look what the text says. Go joyfully. These are messed up people. There's a slight overreaction here. I so despise and hate this one man that I've convinced the king to eradicate 15 million people. But no, that's not good enough. I want this man to be hung from a seven and a half story gallows. By the way, this doesn't mean gallows in the sense that we sometimes think of it as that we're used to seeing in a Western movie. The original word here means a tree or literally a pole or a stake. You might remember that in Persia, they didn't hang their victims with a rope. They impaled them. So they would literally stick a stake right through them, and then they would hang the body on a pole, or in this case, a pole seven and a half stories high. The Romans got the idea from the, from the Phoenicians who earlier learned it from the Persians. And that's why Jesus is said to have hung on a tree or a pole. And the Romans later developed the practice of driving nails into the hands, but the Persians simply impaled the body, put it on a pole, and lifted it up. It was an anguishing, uh, humiliating, torturous death. Here's something to remember. Proud and bitter people do horrible things. You say, well, I must not be proud and I must not be bitter because I would never impale anybody. Now, you might not impale anybody. I might not impale anybody. But I found it to be true in my life that when I become bitter and when I become proud, I do bad stuff. Do you? I say things I shouldn't say about people. I do things I shouldn't do. I think things I shouldn't think which Jesus said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proud and bitter people do horrible things. Haman doesn't want to see Mordecai just die. He wants him to suffer and do so in a way that everybody else can see it. Jonathan Edwards said that pride is the worst viper that's in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace with and sweet communion with Christ. Jonathan Edwards once wrote this, What a foolish, silly, miserable, blind, deceived, poor worm I am when pride works. Boy, I say amen to that. The Bible talks a lot about pride, the necessity of humility. Proverbs 16.8, pride goes before destruction. You've quoted this to your kids before. I've quoted it to my kids. I hope they learn it. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way and the perverted mouth. 
God says, I hate those things. Let me give you as we close this morning three simple steps for walking humbly. Okay? Three simple steps. Number one is to know your God. Humility is not possible without a correct understanding and recognition of who God really is. You see, when we know who he is and we know who we are, then humility is much easier to attain. Charles Bridges said it this way, that pride is contending for supremacy with God. Right? And if you think about it, that's where it all started. That's what Satan wanted to do, right? He wanted to be equal with God. But when we live our lives as if we're supreme as if we're sovereign, we fall into this web of deceit and it's called pride. We begin to believe lies, lies about ourselves. We, believe, we begin to believe that we really are everything that people say we are. We really begin to believe that we're everything that we think we want to be. It's that way with Lucifer and so it is with each of us this morning. Paul reminds us in the letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi, Philippians 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I don't know about you, but for me, that's the problem right there, right? When I become proud, when I become arrogant, what I'm really saying is, I am more important than you. My wishes, my preferences are more important than what your wishes or your preferences are. Paul goes on to say, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have the attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, I love this passage, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Australia. The moderator of the service introduced the missionary in eloquent and glowing terms. And he told the large congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in China. And then he presented him this way, quote, our illustrious guest. Taylor stood quietly for a moment and then opened his message by saying, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. Oh, that you and I might get to that point in our lives, right? Where we realize who we are because we recognize who God is. Number two, a simple step to humility is to remain aware of your own sin, the price that was paid for your redemption. I think that's the way a person becomes humble, by remaining aware of his own sin. You find this to be true. Arrogant, proud people are aware of the sins of others, but not their own. Anybody with me on that? That's what proud people do. Proud people can see everything that everybody else does, but they can't see it in themselves. 
you see, when we understand how much we've been forgiven by a holy, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign God, it causes us to come underneath his authority rather than contend for his supremacy. The Apostle Paul understood it well when he said, uh, I am the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians, he said, I'm the very least of all the saints. And then I love what he said in 1 Timothy 1, I'm the foremost of sinners. I'm the, one translation says, I'm the chief. Dad, you would do well to lead that way in your home. Where your kids understand that you are the chief of sinners. Not them, you are. You do well to lead in the workplace that way. Not lifting yourself and elevating yourself up, but saying, I am above all. I am a sinful person. And I realized the price that was paid for my sin. Number three, you walk instead of talk. Spurgeon said this, I would not advise any of you to try to be humble, but to be humble. As to acting humbly, when a man forces himself to it, that's poor stuff. (laughs) I love it that a guy like Spurgeon would say that. That's poor stuff. When a man talks a great deal about his humility, when he is very humble to everybody, he's generally a canting hypocrite. Humility must be in the heart, and then it will come out spontaneously as the outflow of life in every act that a man performs. True humility is thinking rightly of thyself, not meanly. When you found out what you really are, you'll be humble, for you're nothing to boast of. To be humble will make you safe. To be humble will make you happy. To be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your master by and by. I like that person who talks the most about humility probably isn't. You may be gifted. You're nothing without the enablement of God. And let me say this to you, by the way. If you are gifted, find something to do out of your area of giftedness if you struggle with pride. Right? I've told a lot of people that I'd rather stand up and preach to 5,000 people then I would sit on a floor with those little kindergartners back there and teach them a story. You talk about intimidation, right? Guess where I probably need to go? I probably need to go back there, and I probably need to sit on the carpet. I don't lay a flannel graph boards back there and stuff. I don't, what, no flannel graph? That shows you how long it's been since I've been back there, probably since I was in kindergarten. I need to go do that. Here, if you struggle with pride, do something you're not gifted at doing. We talked a little bit about serving last week. Don't use this. That's not my gift. In fact, we're going to have a new thing around here that when you say it's not your gift, we're going to go, awesome. We won't have an issue with pride then. Go do it. Hey, we need some help on a setup team. Not my gift. Fantastic. We don't have to worry about you getting a big head about setup. Hey, we need you to help with the middle school, you know, sleepover. No, it's not my gift. Don't really like kids. Hey, you were one once. Come serve out of your area of giftedness. Because when you serve outside of your area of giftedness, that's when you know who you're dependent upon, right? You know it's not you. See, when we serve in our area of giftedness, that's when we begin to go, I'm really good. I'm awesome. I am. It's where I'm gifted. Praise me. You may be beautiful. Don't be proud about that. You didn't do anything to deserve your beauty. 
Most of us aren't. I don't struggle there. I don't look in the mirror and go, wow. Woo! Every time I use that number one guard, wow! See, I'm not struggling with that. Some of you are, though. Middle school, high school, girls, some of you are beautiful. You didn't do anything to deserve that. You have beautiful parents. No. You didn't do anything to deserve that. Your God made you that way. You may be wealthy. Don't be like Haman. Look at all that I've attained. Look at all the stuff that I have. Look at my house. How dare you? You've been blessed by God. If it weren't for God enabling you to have that and to do what was necessary to attain that, and should God choose, he can take it all away from you tomorrow. Just ask Job. It's not yours. Anything you and I ever have or will accomplish in our lives will only be done because of the grace that has been extended to us by our great God. The life we have is because of grace. You didn't choose Christ. He chose you. You're not your own. Your redemption came at the cost of God's Son, Jesus Christ, at Calvary. You have no reason to glory in yourself. And I think that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, let him who boasts boast in Yahweh, boast in the Lord. Here's the big idea. Who I am is only because of whose I am. Who I am is only because of whose I am. Apart from him, I am nothing. That's why Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. Without Christ, I'm nothing. I'm a pile of rubbish. Who I am is only because of whose I am. And so you can picture it. Haman goes to sleep that night. And I've got a vivid imagination, but I can imagine him laying in his bed and it's quite possible that he could hear the sound of workers building that gallows. And he goes to bed just happy again, merry of heart, because tomorrow he'll finally be rid of his worst enemies. I, I imagine in his dreams that night, he never dreamt that the possibility was there that he was doing something that was horribly wrong, something that would, would catch up with him and would have tremendous consequences. His ego was writing checks that his true character could never cash. I'm going to see that next week in chapter 6. It's what pride does to us. I challenge you to follow the example of our Savior of Jesus, who when he came to this earth, put aside all of those things that he could have done and he could have been because he was Jesus, took upon himself the form of, his, of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself. The Apostle Paul's challenge to us is be like that. What an incredible place this will be if we're humble people. If you have humble leaders. If we're humble individually and then we're humble as a body of believers. I think that's the kind of place that God delights in working in. When we realize that who we are is only because of whose we are. Let's pray. God, I am very, very much aware of my own pride. I don't even say that this morning in prayer to be humble before these people because I don't want to give a false sense of humility. I'm a messed up guy. 
I thank you for Esther chapter 5, and I thank you for recording Haman's story there, for contrasting it with a humble, wise queen. God, I don't want to be a fool. I don't want other men in this congregation to be fools. I don't want women to be fools and for us to believe that we're something when we're nothing. I don't want to have an attitude that uh, portrays to the God of the universe that you're lucky to have somebody like me on your side. I want to lead humbly. I, I, I want to be part of a body of believers that walk humbly with our God. God, the incredible thing is that when we walk humbly with our God, we recognize that it's never about us. And whatever happens good, we give glory to God. Whatever trials and tribulations we go through, we say it came from God. Cause us to walk humbly like that. And God, as we do, I pray that you would use us individually and collectively for the cause of the gospel, for the furtherance of the gospel in this community and around the globe. We pray in Jesus' name.